Good evening, Hope. I hope that uh, tomorrow you've got marked out, even though it's a, a usual uh, uh, cha- change from our usual schedule, our prayer meeting will be tomorrow night, and usually our practice is to pick a historical revival, study it, ask how did this happen, what did God do here, and what can we learn from it, and tomorrow night, uh, we're not just going to be taking a, a season or a momentary revival that struck a nation or so, we're going we're gonna to study a man, and in particular his early ministry in London in the 1800s, and his name is... Charles Spurgeon, no other Baptist minister exists in the 1800s uh, as far as we care. Reformed Baptist, Charles Spurgeon. And and we're going to be studying the early years of his ministry in London and how his church exploded because of nothing else than praying people and a preaching man. It'll It'll be a blessing for us to ask God, how can we align ourselves with this kind of ministry to see that kind of fruit. So it'll be tomorrow night. I really hope that you can be there and uh, open up to Ephesians 4, which is where we will be reading tonight. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I hope to afterwards. Uh, my name's Tom, and it's, uh, it's great to see you, see you all here in our midst today. Ephesians chapter 4, and we will be in verse 17. The word of the one true living God reads like this. Now, This I I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have learned about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May God bless to us uh, the reading of his own blessed word in our midst. That's pretty good. Well, well that'll do. <clears throat> we, we see here, Paul, give us the reason that pastors often try and avoid preaching exegetically and expositionally. Right? You, maybe you've been coming here and you love going through Bible by passage by passage and, and you wonder, why don't all churches do this? Why didn't my old church do this? Why don't, why don't all pastors just, just commit themselves to a book of the Bible, crack it open and start exploring its majestic glories? Why don't more pastors do that? Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 24. That's why. Because, because when you commit to books, instead of just doing all topical, when you commit to a book, instead of just saying, look, I, I've got to tell you what the Lord put in my heart this morning, of course, which is always tremendously uh, 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 positive and usually ends up in some kind of large giving because everyone's feeling motivated at the end of that message. When you just commit to preaching books of the Bible, you cannot leap over passages like this. Where, when, and we expect there are unbelievers in our midst tonight. I hope that no one here uh, feels unwelcome just because you're a non-Christian. Of course, you, you're, you're different to us. And of course, we, we want to make that distinction clear and point you to Jesus Christ. But we're glad you're here so that you can hear the gospel. That's, that's how I want to open this up. And I need to say that because we read a passage like this and you're going to get pretty offended. And in fact, it's my experience that many Christians get offended at this kind of reading. 
Oh, that's pretty harsh language. You shouldn't be speaking like that to, to my friends. Or I'm sure I wasn't that bad before Jesus. Does, does Paul have a third category of instead of horribly, terribly depraved, wicked sinner and then Christian made a saint in Christ, isn't there a third category of not too bad, pretty good neighbor, doing okay? No. No, you are, you are horribly lost in an incurable, sinful state or you are in Christ. That is all that God knows. It is in Adam going to death by his representative, by his sin, by his condemnation and, and the world that he has received cursed, or you are a part of the new creation, which is under Christ's feet. You are represented by Christ before the Father and you have his righteousness. This is what the book of Ephesians has been showing us. The, the glorious redemption and the gospel that is in Christ Jesus, preached through the gospel, that we are made one with God in our salvation, one with Christ, particularly the second person of the Godhead, all of these wonderful things must have, we said back when we started chapter 4, must have, in fact, that sounds like an exhortation and it's not. It will have, I'm speaking propositional truth here, I'm not saying what should hopefully happen. It will have, that glorious gospel will every time that it strikes a soul and makes you one with Christ, it will have a positive transforming effect on your whole life. There is no such thing as a, as a saved but untransformed Christian, not, not once they've been given some time. The, the Christian, as we see Paul exhorting here in Ephesians 4, is one that does not just amen everything he said in chapters 1 through 3. It's not just somebody who gets to receive all the blessings of Ephesians 1 through 3. Every spiritual bliss, blessing, and sounded Kiwi there for a moment, blessing in Christ Jesus. I'm not Keith, I'm sanctified. Uh, 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 other pastor tonight. Uh, the blessing in Christ Jesus, beginning with election and predestination and adoption and sanctification and future glorification and being added to the church and made partakers in the divine glory and the Holy Spirit given to us. And, and we also, as we looked at the, the, in the last passage, we've received the blessings of pastors and teachers who bring us to full growth and maturity in our Christian walk. If God has gifted you those things in Christ Jesus, then you will be radically transformed. And that is what he commands today here in verse 17 of chapter 4. I say this and I testify in the Lord. He, he is emphasizing and maximizing the, the, the severity and the authority with which he's commanding this. And he says, you must not live like the Gentiles. Now, in our critical age theory, that sounds kind of racist. If I got up here today and I said, don't live like the islanders, or I just picked any, any non-Australian group, and I know Australians are pretty amalgamated, or I picked, don't live like that skin color, or that, would you go, whoa, that's, that's a little bit, you know, that, that's, a bit, that's a bit much. It'd be funny, maybe, for the other people, but not for everybody. But, but, but don't hear Paul saying, do good, Gentile, bad, racial division. At which point you might be confused. <laughs> Wasn't he saying just this chapter and the last chapter and the chapter before that in fact there is none of this racial division between Jew, good, Gentile, bad anymore in the church? And, and of course you could take it to read, don't live like spiritual Gentiles, which would include of course ethnic Jews who reject Christ and ethnic Gentiles who reject Christ. They're all spiritual Gentiles. Okay, but even that is not really what he's saying. At this point in history, as Paul is writing, he is, he's in first century Roman Empire, uh, in Roman house arrest, but he's speaking to the Ephesians. And it is pretty much an assumed rule that the Jews had a, 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 just an openly more conservative, pure, lawful, 
godly way of living in their socio-cultural uh, uh, existence. They just did. They had better laws, uh, less fornication, etc., etc. And yet it was, it was very clear at the same time that the Gentiles had this, this, this almost free-for-all. Their religion was more defiled. It was more about the flesh. It was more lawless and, and violent, etc., etc. So what Paul is saying is, is to them, and, and the way that we can, we can sort of uh, bring it into contextualize it for us tonight is to say, think of the unbelieving, pagan, lost, Christless, anti-Christ world that is out there. And I would say, of course, that even our anti-Christ world in the West is not quite as depraved openly yet, maybe give it a couple of months, one more election cycle, but not quite as bad as what the Roman world and especially Ephesus was, right? Ephesus was the kind of like Corinth, one of the Vegases of the early centuries. The, the, it was the Vegas where, where it was a port city. It's where all the men went for business. It's where all the, the gals went to start an acting career. You know, it was a down and dirty city to live in. So here's Paul. This is all just intro for Paul saying, don't live godless, disgusting lives. Hopefully we can all amen that. But instead of just, oh, there you go. But instead of just leaving it at that, he actually starts describing what it is about the pagan lifestyle or about the non-Christian lifestyle that he wants us to think so that we are averted from it. He's going to speak in, I've grouped them into three ways. He's going to speak of the non-Christian as being ignorant. They've got a mind problem, an information problem. Then he's going to speak of them as being guilty. They've got a moral debt towards God. Then it's going to speak of them being corrupt. They're defiled. They're disgusting. Different elements of the non-Christian worldview, lifestyle, and soul. Look, look first as we, we sort of go through all the verses and highlight the areas of which he, he points out their ignorance. So look at verse 17. Right off the bat, he says that the Gentiles are in the futility of their minds. Their mind is futile. The wheels are spinning, but they're not moving. They're bogged. The engine's running, but there's no progress. They are thinking long and hard and very quickly, but it's futile. It's not actually achieving what one would want a thinking mind to achieve, which is arrival at ultimate truth. Look at verse 18. He says, they are darkened in their understanding. Right? So somebody didn't turn the lights on in the room called understanding. That they misunderstand very key and core elemental fundamental truths so that they're lost in their, in their lives. <clears throat> Verse 18, he also says that this is due to the ignorance that is in them. Again, ignorance, it's something they do not know. And he says in verse 22, when he speaks of the, the former manner of life, he says it is corrupt through deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. They're lied to. Their, their life is corrupt because they're believing deceptive lies. So, so we have is this all-encompassing reality. The first one that Paul points to, that the unbeliever doesn't have a working mind. Feel free to be offended. It's because you don't have, right? What does it say? A working mind. Now, now, this does not mean, what Paul is not saying is that unbelievers have no ability to think. What he means is they don't have an ability to think consistently. 
Okay, now, so, 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 so yes, is it true? Amen. We, we have had tremendous medical, scientific, uh, physical, astronomical, medical advances made throughout the history of the world that were done by non-Christians. True? True. True. That is not what Paul is contradicting here. He's not saying that they can't see the world, think about the world, and put some truth claims together to arrive at a brand new and functional, productive conclusion. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying that they are ultimately ignorant of ultimate realities. Think of it this way. I don't know if you're a puzzle person. I'm not. You can probably tell that. I have way too short attention span. That's why I talk. You guys listen. Uh, uh, this is why I walk around and we don't have a cage around this pulpit. This is why uh, uh, I don't do puzzles. Uh, we tried a puzzle once on a holiday, me and my wife and my son, like me, uh, tipped over a coffee over on top of our puzzle set when it was half done and everything just became swollen and amalgamated and disgusting. That was the end of our puzzle. So I don't know whether you're a puzzle person, but if you are, you're probably, you know, you're probably, you think you're smart, but there's another technical medical word for it, and I won't say what it is. But if you love puzzles, you know that there are people like me who don't like puzzles, and, and it's like this. The, the, the unbelieving mind, whether religious or atheist or agnostic or whatever, we're the type of people who can grab a bunch of the puzzles, and, and there's a corner piece pile, and there's that pile, and, and we can assemble some of it. Like I saw, that looks like an arm, and that looks like an arm, and, 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 and we can put some together, but never finish it. Right. I can never get it top, down, right to left. I can never put it all together in its final picture. The best I can do is assemble some things together so that I can say to some degree, I did some puzzle. Whereas other people have the tiz and they can just complete it in an hour. And they just, they just, they're done with the image from top to bottom, right to left. The whole thing is completed. Now, this is the thinking of the unbeliever. It is true that they can put some mathematical principles at play. They can take some of the, the world that they see that God has made and, and arrive at truth. And they can, they can put some things together and, and even develop what they think might be a functional worldview. But in reality, it is an incomplete, edgeless puzzle. It has no real substance. It is not uh, anchored to one particular side. It's just, it's just different elements that are all sort of shoved together. And then maybe like the toddler or like me, they grab a glue stick, just rub it all over them, and just shove the bits in together no matter what it looks like. That's what the unbelieving world and their mind is like. They have some truth, some, some mon uh, uh, multiple truths that, that can arrive at conclusions and discoveries and inventions, but never ultimate truth. Here's some ultimate realities that unbelievers are ultimately ignorant of. How we got here, the question of origins. What happens next? The question of the afterlife. What am I? What is this thing that I look sitting across from? What am I? What does it mean to be human? That's anthropology. Am I, am I an evolved uh, uh, monkey cousin? Or am I a deposit from an alien life form? Or what am I? What are you? Anthropology. Why are we here and what is our purpose? Right? The, the meaning of life, one of the most debated questions out of everybody in the world. What is the meaning of life? That is our, our teleology, the telos, the purpose for which God created the world. They can't answer that. What is right and wrong? A system of ethics. Or, most importantly, what is our standard of answering any one of those things, which is called epistemology? 
If, if you think long and hard as a philosopher or a religious person or whatever, if you think long and hard and you claim that you have immense knowledge but you can't answer every single one of those, your knowledge is useless, your mind is futile. Because it doesn't matter what else you know. It doesn't matter what else you can understand and explain. If you don't know ultimate realities with certainty, then, then nothing that you say matters in a long-term manner. You could be entirely wrong about all of them. Philosophers attempt to answer these things, but Paul calls the philosopher in Acts 17, blind men groping around in the dark when God is standing right in front of them with a huge whiteboard of truth. Religious pagans and, and false prophets and priests and priestesses, they, they claim divine revelation of these things. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 8, says that that's like when you walk through a forest at dusk and the birds are all chirping. They're just, they're just vomiting out noises that they've got coming out of their, out of their, 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 their visceral parts. You, no one puts that together and tries to understand what Morse code the birds are communicating. Neither should we with false prophets and religions that claim divine revelation. They're, they're just chirping birds. They're best stoned down out of the tree. Or... The agnostic denies that there really is a possible knowledge of any of these ultimate questions, and then they are almost in the worst position of all, the painful position of trying to live consistently with that claim. You claim you can't even know right and wrong, you don't, you don't live that way. You claim there really is no purpose in the world, now you got up out of bed this morning, there's some degree of purpose. You claim that there is no way of knowing anything, and yet you just made a truth claim about knowing something. The, the ultimate agnostic has no real way of living consistently with their beliefs. Or the materialist describes things without explanations. I heard Doug Wilson say this once. He's a, an American pastor. He said, the materialist loves to describe things and thinks they've explained them. Right? Why do I keep lashing out at my partner like this? Well, what that is, my friend, that's the, that's the firing of the prefrontal cortex is you're in fight or flight mode, etc., etc. Okay. Thanks for describing what just happened in a more detailed, lengthy definition. Why? Why am I like this? Why, why is my child acting out this way? Well, you see, your child is responding from the inner responses of what you've responded to through your inner child. But, okay, thanks. You've described it again with a lengthier doctorate-level description. You haven't explained anything. Why is the human heart this way? I'm suffering. My life is filled with this. I've experienced this hurt. I, I'm, I'm reaching out for reason and, and in pain until I... Why? Why does this happen to me? Well, it turns out that uh, as humans interact, what we do is we, we relate to each other through envy and blah, blah. Okay, thank you again, sociologist, for a description that explains nothing. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Well, you're what we call a humanoid, more specifically a homo sapien. What that means is that you're, you're bipodal, pedal, which means you walk and you have opposal thumbs and you think that, okay, great. Another definition or description that doesn't explain the question. Who am I? Why am I here? The materialist has all the answers to what, so they think, but have no answers to why. And so it is that Paul says that as much as they know, as much as they can define, the facts that they put together, it is ultimately ignorance because they have no all-encompassing system of ultimate realities. Down the road, we've got an Ikea. May it burn down swiftly. 
Every husband that's ever tried to put down, put together this, these, 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 these Swedish curses on the marriage uh, together. And, and, and there was this one time that it was my job. I was doing it. We were not married enough to be so set in our vows that we could take on a, 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 an affliction like that together. I said, other room, I'll do this. And at some point, maybe an hour, maybe an hour or two in, uh, a few episodes into the office, she calls in and goes, hey, have, have you finished? Do you have the bookshelf? And, and what I had was shelves that came already flat packed. I had them. And I could claim to some degree, yeah, I've got shelves. I've made shelves. I've, look at my system of bookshelf. I've got the shelf, but literally no, sh- no bookshelf, no, no structure, no walls that have put, been put into it. No other system clicked in. That's the Gentile mind. That's the unbelieving mind. Do you have some things that you just found on the ground in God's universe and put two and two together? Sure. Do you have a system with which they work and are ultimately connected to ultimate truths? No. No, not at all. So Paul says what he says here. Or or then we move to the next way that Paul looks at the Gentile mind, the unbelieving lifestyle, and he calls it not just ignorant, but now guilty. And more specifically, Guilty of being ignorant. So look at verse 18. He says that their, might, their, their understanding is darkened. They are darkened in their understanding. Now, again, that sounds like an ignorance one, but, but Paul uses the word darkened here, which I think gives it, some, give, gives it a, a moral component. He didn't just say they're empty in their understanding or they're, they're incorrect in their understanding. He's not just dealing with factoids here. He's in fact saying that they are darkened. Biblical language for morality. You are either in the light of understanding, the moral good, or you are disobeying God by being ignorant. Disobedience is, is assimilated with ignorance in the Bible. You are darkened in your understanding, and you're guilty for that. Look at verse 18. actually goes on further to say, alienated from the life of God... Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Do you see that it's not just a matter of ignorance that is, that is morally neutral. We, 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 don't, we don't really think that. If we think of our own education, we don't think in terms of ignorance being evil. No, no grade tenor comes into class and then is immediately failed and sent to detention for not knowing everything they're about to be taught in the next semester. He's not guilty. He just hasn't learned yet. What's the problem, Mrs. Bartholomew? You, you, you know, that, that's not how the education system works. And, and that is true. But that is not an equative or a helpful uh, picture for how God looks at our ignorance. Rather... We're told that we are ignorant precisely because we don't like following where the truth leads us. Before Jesus Christ, the more more truth we consume, the more evidence there is that God exists, He holds me as guilty, He will judge me, there's salvation only in Jesus and every other way of living leads to hell. That's where I'm going. It's as if a, a, a judge or maybe a detective was put in charge of a, of a hit and run or, or a murder case and, and he starts finding out the more he follows the evidence that everything points to his son as being the criminal. What does he start doing? Out of love for his son, he starts uh, uh, fobbing with the, with the evidence. He starts burning certain uh, elements of the, of the case. He starts uh, correcting files. He starts throwing in red herrings to take the, 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 the case and the investigation elsewhere because he knows where the truth lies. That's what the, the non-Christian is like. Yes, you are ignorant. Yes, there is much you don't know. 
Yes, you are guilty for that because you should have known it. Now, Paul can only say that if what we should have known has already been given to us in the past, right? I cannot be guilty for not knowing something God has not told me. I can only be guilty for ignoring something that he has already told me, but I ignored and thank the Lord for Romans 1, which gives us some explanation around this. You could turn there. We're going to be in verse 18. The same author, Paul, writes Romans 1 using much the same language. And at the end of verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18, he says this. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Suppress the truth. Think of, think of a brother with a younger brother wrestling him on the mat, trying to keep him down. It takes all effort. As, as he fights for his life and his brother wails into him, he's got to watch every limb. It takes all of him to keep him down, right? That's, that's the suppression, the active fighting to keep something down that Paul is talking about here. He doesn't say men are ignorant if only they had the truth. He says, first up, they're unrighteous, man, woman, child. We're not even starting from a neutral standing point, as if to say, what should we do with these people who are honestly seeking after truth but have not found it? Paul says, nope, doesn't exist. From the, gray, from the, from the, from the, the womb, they are dead, they are darkened, they have their hearts which are turned against truth. There's no true, neutral seeker of truth in the world. If there was, they'd find God in Christ immediately. Paul says, no, they're unrighteous. They don't want the truth. They're fighting against it. Therefore, they suppress the truth wherever it is found. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's really easy to suppress because you find it everywhere. It's, it, it's, in the other hand, it's really hard to suppress because it's everywhere, but it's really easy to be a truth suppressor if you like suppressing truth because truth is so available. It's everywhere. It's like when, when the council puts up enormous white uh, uh, walls along the side of the highway and then the next day are surprised that graffitiers have come along and put their tags on it. Like, what did you think was going to... These guys love big blank spaces. So it is with truth suppressors. We love suppressing truth. And we're like a bull in the china shop. When God lets us loose in this world, we are running around at every description and every picture of God's glory, defacing it, suppressing it, and pushing it down, and then have the audacity to claim, he's just, I just wish he had revealed himself to me. Now, we're the guilty graffiti artists who pretend we didn't see the canvas we sprayed on. It says, Look at the end of verse 19. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. Right? He's not saying, no, it's plain to them. I'm, I'm sure their mother taught them about God. No, God has not delegated this revelation of himself to the souls of mankind to anybody else. He did the speaking. He has shown it to them. He is the one that has walked up to each soul since the moment they could think in this world and has shown to them moment by moment the glory of his wisdom in the, in the skies, the power of his divine creation in the, in the world. He is the God who personally has been revealing to every single person. I'm just wondering if there's any in our midst right now who are pretend Christians or, or, or realizing you're not a Christian or you know you're not a Christian, you've been invited here by a friend, and you're realizing that this is you. 
that out of this, this, this miraculous reality, some dude from 2,000 years ago is looking into your heart and doing, a, doing an act of, 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 of telepathy. He's reading your mind. He's telling you exactly how you've thought every day and he's nailing it. Do you know why? Because what Vic said is true. The Word of God is written by God. The Word of God is the preserved truth of the God who created you and loves you but knows you deeply. And that is a fearful thing to realize. He's looking at you tonight and saying, you are running from me, but I'm everywhere. You have been suppressing me in ignorance, but that will not hold up in court. The detective, the father of the criminal, he will be judged in that scenario we mentioned before. He'll be judged not simply for being incompetent. He didn't know that the evidence was important. He didn't know that the dropping the papers into the shredder would mean they get shredded. It's not mere incompetence. It's active suppression of facts that did not belong to him to destroy. So it is with you. God will hold you and not simply say you're ignorant. Maybe you could take that. Oh, fine. At least then that mitigates my punishment. I didn't know. Plausible deniability. He says you should have known. I told you clearly. It was face to face. God on you. You know what I'm judging you for. You've denied it all of your days. Look at verse 20. So they are without excuse. Verse 20 ends up. Without excuse. There's nothing you can claim on that judgment day to make God say, of course, I, I totally forgot to send you the invite to know about me. Every soul will be spoken to by God through this world, and in your conscience, you will have no excuse. Verse 21, even though they knew God, right? to some degree, everyone knows God. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now we go back to Ephesians 4. Go back to Ephesians 4, verse 17 through 19. We see that Paul is, has used similar language. Futile thinking, because you try and suppress the truth of God, but, but not just futile thinking. Guilty hearts that are turned against God's knowledge. And what is the effect of that? Ephesians tells us, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up. You see, your heart was hardened against the truth, but that, doesn't, that didn't stop you from suppressing the truth and becoming even more hardened. I know as Calvinists, we love to speak of total depravity, amen. A total depravity, born dead in sin, unable to, there is no island of righteousness or free will within you that can choose God as he's presented to you. No, totally depraved. That's true. Don't let that remove from your theology the reality of gradations of sin. Each, each person, like Pharaoh, like, like sinners in his own day, like you today, sinner, you are still able to go from guilty to, to more guilty, to, to hardened against sin, to totally calloused. The Greek word behind callous here seems to be a stonemasonry reference when they would encase something in hardened stone, impenetrable, uncrackable, protected. It's what your soul becomes like. You, you were calloused at one time, but by your love of sin, by your pursuit of lies, you have become so encased by a callous, nothing can break through now. God says that the Ignorance leads to callousness, and they have given themselves up, verse 19. Romans 1 says, God gives them up. You, be, you hate truth that much? You love sin that much? I'll give you up. I'll let go of the rope and see where you lead. 
Ephesians 4, Paul says that they give themselves up. It's the same thing. They're leaning over the precipice. They're they're reaching out over the cliff and God holds them back by His grace and His mercy. When He gives them up, they send themselves falling. This is what the, the unbelieving mind is like. Your heart is day by day getting harder. You're falling in headlong into sinful patterns of lifestyle. And then it causes more ignorance. Romans says that ignorance causes the callousness of the heart. Ephesians 4 says that the callousness of the heart produces more ignorance. And here you are stuck in this horrible cycle of self-destroying sin. You think wrongly because you hate the truth which makes you think wrongly, hate the truth even more, and fall into this, this, third, uh, this next uh, element that Paul references in verse 19. You're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Greedy. You see, he's not just saying things that are out of your control. Maybe people have put their hands up at this point and say, excuse me, Thank you very much. My therapist told me, my counselor told me, my, 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 my thoughts and, and, and my star sign and my horoscopes told me, thank you, that because of the, the, the sociology that I was a part of, okay, because of the culture and the, and the situation and, and the family or because of my early childhood trauma or, or because of the way I was treated or because of the way my brain developed in early childhood or because of my neurodivergence or because of my father's speech towards me, blah, 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 yet all, mostly, except for the star sign stuff, relevant. I don't need to say none of that is true. Brain science, cool. Irrelevant, though. Paul's not saying you're guilty for what has been done against you. Wherever in Scripture do you see God judging somebody because they were assaulted or offended or traumatized or raised wrong? Is that ever the basis of God's judgment? Absolutely not. You being a victim doesn't mean you're not a horrible criminal against God's law. All that you're being judged for is what you've done. Now let's start asking that question. Putting our finger on that pulse. What does Paul say here? You're greedy to practice all kinds of impurity. I'm I'm not asking how you were treated. I'm not asking how you were maybe even assaulted or maybe even traumatized. I'm definitely not asking what your star sign is. Okay, But all of that to put, put to the side... Haven't you been greedy to engage in sexual immorality? No one put a gun to your head for that. No one put a gun to your head to make you speak evil, evil, evil words and, and envious words and, and cutting words to the people around you in high school. No, nobody made you speak to your wife in derogatory and horrible ways. No one put a gun up to your head and made you flirt with somebody that was not your, 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 your spouse. No one made you use vile language and watch horrible things on screens in the secret of the night. That was you. You were greedy to do that. Gobbling up the different ways of sinning, that is what constitutes your guilt before God. So you're ignorant, but it's a guilty ignorance. However much is nature or nurture, you are hungering for it and you are feasting on it. Therefore, you're accountable and you're guilty. And thirdly, we see this idea of corruption. Corruption. This, this idea of impurity or vileness. Disgusting things, right? Uh, uh, some people might want to say, well, I can submit that I was wrong, but not ugly. I was, I was misinformed. I was living according to a different point of view. I was caught out on a technicality before the law. No. no God wants to color in all shades from all different angles as he s- describes our, our sin through the Apostle Paul. And now he says, 
You were ignorant. You were guilty for that ignorance. And you know what else you were? You were a flesh-rotting bacteria-inflicted person. Necrotizing fasciitis. I wonder if you've ever seen it. You can go home and Google it, vomit, and thank me. Necrotizing fasciitis. If, if, if There's bacteria that gets in the skin and into the muscle. and If not caught with severe antibiotics and surgery, which just scrapes the flesh off you quickly, if you don't get that, then what you become is this, is this, this corrupted entire human body that is walking around like a walking corpse. It rots, it pustulates, it drips, it, it falls, it, it hangs. It's disgusting. And that is how God sees you outside of Jesus Christ. That is how God looked at you outside of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. If your uncle was coming over for a dinner and he was well-dressed and you like this guy, but he's just got out of prison for 20 years for tax embezzlement, you know, kind of a hero in my books. I'm just joking. Uh, uh, for, for tax, I'm totally joking. Don't, don't report me to anybody. I don't care. Uh, uh, or he's, you know, he got in a bar fight one time and it was, it was manslaughter. And so technically, legally, he's very guilty. And he's just done 20 years, and he's coming over to your house, but he's, he's dressed to a T. You don't think twice. He's here, you let him in. If Mother Teresa herself, or, or somebody actually that you value, was coming over and you loved them, but they were head to toe, covered in grease, muck, and, ma and, and mire from their workplace, and had fallen headlong into a cow patty outside on the road, and are now standing on your threshold, it's not that they're at odds with the law, and it's not that your values don't align, it's that they're disgusting. <laughs> they won't be coming in <laughs> until they take a shower. And God wants to put all of these things together. So you weren't just illegal, you weren't just wrong, you are disgusting. Look at the language that he uses in Ephesians 4. He says in verse 19 that they have given themselves up to sensuality. Sensuality, don't, don't uh, uh, synonymize it with sexuality. Sensuality is just a lifestyle of living where you're always seeking to indulge the senses. Whatever you see, you want to look at it. Whatever you taste that is nice, you indulge. Whatever you, 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 you hear that is beautiful, you, you want that all the time. Whatever you, you engage sexually in desire, you, you want that full time. It's, it's just a living after the path set before you by the senses. You, just, you put the blindfold on to reason and you chase your nose. This disgusting way of living. If anyone, maybe even that was your life before Christ, you could, don't amen it, don't show me your hands, but you know this. It took you to do disgusting things physically sexually, the things you said to people, the, the way you allowed yourself to be spoken to, the things you wanted to do and didn't even have the guts to do because you just weren't fallen enough yet. It's a disgusting lifestyle, the lifestyle in sin. So often, hand in hand with sexuality. He says here that they are greedy to practice, which is what we've looked at, they're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you see that he didn't just say, evil or, or wrongness. He says impurity. The, the, the Old Testament painted us this picture of purity and impurity. This is the, 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 the word that was used in the Old Testament of, of clean and unclean or somebody who is defiled and unable to access God. Somebody who has a, a flesh-eating wound or, or, or some kind of bodily discharge or they've touched a dead thing. There is impure, disgusting, not allowed in. The kind of thing that makes your gut turn. 
Jonathan Edwards, when preaching his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741, he spoke to his people and he used this analogy. He, he was looking for a fight. He said to them, you very nice, religious, Presbyterian, ordered, polite people. You know what God thinks when he looks at you? Think one day you're reaching for a book at the back of the shelf. Maybe in our day, you think you, you dropped your keys down the back of the TV. You say, you, you've dropped a, a canister of condiments down the back of the cupboard and in your hand goes, and as it comes out, your hand is covered with 10 or 20 spiders quickly running up your sleeve and, and burrowing into, into, into your knuckles. And the, what, that feeling that you have in that moment as you see them and you just want to fling your arm away, even chop it off if you could, just that, just that visceral reaction to get it away from you, Edward says the, the, the reaction is to, to quickly throw it into the fire as quickly as possible. He says, yeah, God feels that about you. Makes a good Hallmark card, doesn't it? <laughs> That's how God feels about you. That from the moment you're born, from the moment you start thinking, you start doing so in such a way that makes him immediately, viscerally desire to cast you into hell. And the only thing that stops God from doing so immediately is his grace and his mercy so that he can take you to a time in your life where Christ can be presented to you and your sins absolved in Christ's blood. How long would you last 20 spiders crawling over your hands or, or, or a fistful of maggots that you picked up from the bin? How, how long would you be able to put up with that for even the closest relative that you love? I've I got two or three minutes on me for that. God, your whole life persevering, patient, if we can use this language of God, self-controlled, so as to not burn you up the, with, as the disgusting thing that he looks at. He says in verse 22, the old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. Corrupted is the language that again we're seeing here. The sinner is ignorant, he's guilty for being ignorant, and he or she is corrupt in God's eyes so that you are impure and disgusting. That is how God considers our life without Christ. And then Paul says in verse 20, but that's not how you learned Christ. There is a big turnaround at this point. He has been speaking about the people without Jesus. Don't be like them. But of course, you who have claimed Christ and have amened every blessing that I've written to you in this Ephesian epistle, you, you know better. That's not how you learned to live. And it's as if he's, he's calling them out here. Sort of sarcastically, he says, that's not how you learned Christ. If you have heard of him, if you were taught in him, I mean, if you are a Christian, of course, if you want to put your hand up and say, not the Christianity I know, I can have Jesus as Savior, but I can be my own Lord. You go, oh, oh, you're one of those people that has no clue who Jesus is. You dialed the wrong number, you got Jesus, not Jesus, right? Wrong guy. He says, you know, assume in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him, right? the Christian who thinks they're allowed to live in their sin, Paul laughs at them and goes, yeah, okay, you've never even heard about Jesus. I can introduce you to him if you want. Oh, you've got a PhD. Cool. Your wife's a pastor along with you. Sweet. Would you like to meet Jesus? Like no matter how, 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 how Christianese they speak, if they are living in their sin, if we, let's make this personal as Paul wants it to be, if we are living in our sin with the desire that God leaves us alone in this pattern, then Paul would say to us, I'd love to introduce you to Jesus because you look to me like somebody that's never met him. And he's calling them out. Because he says, he says next, uh, 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, right? Here's the funny part. Who taught them Jesus? Who introduced Jesus to them for the first time as a missionary and an apostle to the Gentiles? It was Paul. He can call them out on exactly what he taught them because for two plus years, he was their pastor. He knows what they heard. He knows what the standing of teaching was. And, and it's as if he's saying to them, you learned about the right and the true Jesus. The Jesus that is God become man. The Jesus that was perfect. The Jesus that died a substitutionary atoning sacrifice in our place for our sins. The Jesus whose payment was accepted and he was resurrected. The Jesus who was exalted to heaven to reign and rule in all glory. The Jesus who promised before he left that he would be with his disciples to establish the church in the world and lead them to victory in heaven and beyond, to an eternal glory. The Jesus who has promised that every sheep that he finds that is lost, he will bring into his fold and transform by the power of the Spirit. The Jesus who has promised, according to Ephesians 4, to give pastors and teachers and the apostolic prophetic Bible too so that they can be built up, mature, and growing in health and holiness. That Jesus, I know I preach to you that Jesus. I know you don't have an excuse to go about according to the deceitful desires of sin that lie to you that they will satisfy that lie to you that you will get away from it, that lie to you that you will be able to, 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 to keep the sin hidden without consequences. No, Paul says they're deceitful lies and it's not how you learned Christ. It could be tempting to hear him say learned Christ and think that he means a lifelong process, which of course we're, we're all in the school of Christ for our whole life. But he doesn't mean, I, I would reference Bornhofer when he said, in the school of Christ, you enter and graduate immediately. Then you learn. By faith and faith alone, Ephesians 2 told us. By the redemption of the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1 told us. By no works that we contribute, only by him making us alive, Ephesians 2 told us. Not because of your learning and obedience and discipleship do you become a Christian. No, you become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And yet, Paul calls that process a learning Christ. And he could also speak of the whole Christian life as a learning Christ. To learn Christ to know the truth that is in Christ demands that we live in accordance to it. And so he, he speaks here of a threefold process of our salva salvation conversion. He speaks of us putting off the old, being renewed in our mind, and putting on the new. Putting off the old happens as your lifestyle, your patterns, and your behavior are turned from in repentance. When Paul was among the Ephesians, he told them, I preach to you repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever lifestyle, your patterns, however you sinfully identify, whatever you are doing that is in, in contradiction to God's word, God commands that you turn from it to Jesus Christ. That you turn from it towards God and then you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not works-based. That is simply faith alone. A faith that commits to a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. By faith you put off the old. By faith we hear from Paul in Galatians 2.20 that the world is crucified to him and he is crucified to the world so that it is now Christ living in him. By faith our old self is dead and in the grave that Jesus was buried in 
and our life is now with him on the throne that Jesus is seated on. How do you put, as you're reading this and you think, how do I learn Christ? Uh, how, How do I put off the old self, which is so corrupted and guilty and ignorant? You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe everything that he has said about you in tonight's passage and you say, that's me. And if I disagree, that's just the evil coming out. That's all me. That's exactly who I am. I believe God. And now I call out to the surgeon alone who can save me from such a horrible, deadly prognosis. And I say, please save me from this. Even as much as I don't quite understand it or as much as I don't agree with it, I I know that's part of my evilness. Lord, please just save me from it. I want heaven. I want forgiveness. I want Christ. Please save me. You do that and your old self is stripped off of you like clothes that don't fit anymore and that are disgustingly vile. That old self becomes dead and you become a new person. And then from that point on, you grow through the final two. Renewal of your mind and putting on the new. Look at verse 23. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, or it could otherwise be translated, to be renewed by the spirit in your minds and to put on the new self. So so putting off of the old self occurs at repentance and faith. The renewal of the mind happens every day of the Christian life as you tell yourself and remind yourself new realities. There is an amazing assumption that Paul is making in this text that I think in our 21st century world we are very apt to overlook it and then we miss part of what he's saying and we excuse it away. An enormous element of what Paul assumes as he says this is that you can actually and ought to change. Change is possible. Change is demanded by God. But change is possible. That's his assumption. There are so many Christian ways of thinking, or pseudo-Christian, but it happens in the church. Or There are so many uh, uh, materialistic and, and, and medical-focused, or, or maybe even psychiatric. I'm not having a stroke. That's what's happening now. Uh, psychiatry that will say that people can't change. I mean, we know what happened to them in their childhood and and we know what, we have a name for what they have now. We have a diagnosis and and their best bet is some medicines or or maybe some very strange meditation, but, but at best we're just working with broken materials here. Again, we might even think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Pisces. What can I do? You know, I, I did the personality test. I'm ENFP. I did one and it's J-R-E-K. I just can't fit. You know, this is, my, this is how God made me, actually. This is who I am. The Bible screams out of us, at us. No, it's not. It's who you were. There is actually the command which assumes the reality that you can change. No matter how addicted you want to call yourself. No matter how conditioned or diagnosed somebody will speak over you, and that's not even to denigrate all kinds of medical diagnosis. It is simply to say that as soon as anybody, no matter their doctorates, no matter their pastoral experience or counseling experience, tell you, you don't have the ability to walk in righteousness here, they're at odds with the Apostle Paul, and they're wrong by definition. You walk out, you demand your 120 bucks an hour back. If somebody tells you that there is something about your constitution that is unchangeable, you'll, you'll carry this till death. You know, it might even be a positive in you. You say personality does not overpower the spirit, and by the spirit I have a new nature. 
I'm a new person. It's an immeasurable power of God that is towards us who believe, according to Ephesians 1.19. You can change. You spend one more day speaking harshly to your wife, outbursting in anger towards your employees, thieving from your employer, living in dishonesty, looking at pornography, sleeping with your girlfriend. You do that one more day, you are guilty for it. You can change. You must change. You must not. As Paul testifies, in the Lord, you must not walk as the Gentiles walk. And what sounds like a heavy-handed command is buffeted by the rich blessings of the gospel given to us in Ephesians. You're a new self. You have the spirit you need in order to live freely. You have everything you need in Christ to live a godly life. And if you feel like, no, I, I really do have personal uh, limitations, we say, amen. That's why he gave you the church, the other members of the body, and pastors and teachers to equip you to full manhood. No excuses. Not in the, not in the mature church. Maybe in the childhood, the infantile, the incorrect church. But the true church that Ephesians paints to us is a church filled with people that will fail, that will sin. But no, there is not to be an excuse made before God. We plead the blood of Christ and we get working. And the how to it, I don't just want to say do it without the how. That would be unpastoral. And Paul does tell us how. He says the how you change, which if you're a Christian, you, you, your heart burns with that question. How do I change? <laughs> You've told me I can change, now how? The simple process is the renewing of your mind. You shape your mind by new truth. This comes back to one of the basic principles we, we preach on in Colossians and earlier in Ephesians we reminded ourselves that the human constitution is this. Mind affections will. Your will does whatever your affections most desire. That is true 24-7, 100 times out of 100. You will choose to do whatever you feel like doing most. Here's where the power comes in. If we can change what you think in your mind, you will look at things with changed affections. Oh, fornication? You mean the best night of my life that helps me relieve stress and feel like a man? No, I mean fornication, the things that make you burn forever. Oh, I desire that a little bit less. Yeah, you think? That's good. Oh, 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 self-esteem and, and attention from people, that thing which will give me some worth. No, no self-esteem, which is that demonic desire for attention that takes glory away from Christ. Oh, oh, maybe I shouldn't pursue self-esteem? Yeah, you think? When our minds are inserted with truth from the Word of God, inserted with truth from teaching in sermons, inserted with truth from what God says, our affections are shaped by them and our wills will change. There is, there is no Christian who can devote themselves to the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the gathering with the Christian, the praying, the reading of the Bible. You cannot commit yourself to those with any length of time without seeing some tremendous fruit in some manner. It is just how the Spirit works. You're either not engaging it or not engaging in it by faith or it's just not been enough time. That is the great and glorious exhortation that Paul here gives us. And it's amazing that as he describes the new self, he uses language that is entirely opposite from the old self. The old self, he said, was ignorant without knowledge, was guilty and unrighteous, and is corrupt, unholy. And in verse 23, he speaks of us. Uh, sorry, verse 24, the new self 
created after the... Uh, sorry, verse 23. Renewed in the spirit of your minds. That's knowledge. Verse 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness as opposed to guilt. And in holiness as opposed to being corrupt. Whatever you have been, God has the power and the promise to make you something entirely opposite. It is possible, but only by his word and his spirit. Commit to it by faith. And there are others of you who are yet to call out on, on the life-giving power of the blood of Jesus. And tonight is that night. You must recognize what God says about you, admit that that is your prognosis, and call out on God to heal you, save you, transform you, and change you. But first, to forgive you by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we give glory to the Lord Jesus. We glorify him because as we read this, this anatomy of depravity and this biography of, of horrible, horrible sin, Lord, we acknowledge that that was us. We, we have no defense. We have no motivation to even deny that. We, we were so fallen. And as we recognize that, Lord God, we can exalt Jesus Christ for being such a savior from such a fallenness. Hallelujah. What a savior. Lord God, only in you would there be such a power and yet you put it out through Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we also are reminded as we think of how evil and vile we were before Christ, we were reminded in some measure to be encouraged by what fruit there has been. To be encouraged by, by what progress we have made in the Christian life, even if it's small. We thank you that your spirit has enabled us to do this, but we beg and we pray for more. Lord, I pray for the experienced Christians that you would not let them get lethargic and slow, but only, only crank up the energy towards sanctification and, and re-realize the holy and high and upward call that you give to us. Lord God, for the, for the new Christian and the young Christian who is, who is still so uh, 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 surrounded by youthful fleshly desires and temptations and, and parties and, and groups of people around them, Lord God, I pray that you would give to them an otherworldly strength and to be able to stay holy and pure in a, in a disgusting generation. Father God, we pray that we would all be able to walk one with another, bearing with each other's sins, but encouraging with one another, not making excuses for ourselves or each other, but praying and suffering alongside each other. And Lord God, I pray for those in our midst who still now know they are outside of Jesus. They have still not put their faith in you since we, since we commanded them to mid-sermon. Father God, give them now a heart that erupts in love to Jesus that erupts in faith towards Jesus Christ and holds on to him for salvation. God, please be merciful to us, terrible sinners, and glorify yourself in our salvation. Father God, we thank you for all of this in the name of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.